Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. You can find that on page 857 on a blue pew Bible. I apologize now for my voice. I'm battling a cold of, of some sort, and so I hope it's not too distracting uh, for you this morning. And um, I'm, I'm going to aim to keep my distance from everyone, so I won't be at the, uh, at the back door uh, like normal. And I like to do that, to be able to talk to as many people on a Sunday as I can. Uh, but today's not that day. And so uh, talk amongst yourselves. And uh, if you are new this morning, uh, I hope I'll meet you next week and uh, look forward to that. Um, but we're going to continue in our Advent series that we have uh, been doing this year called Waiting Well. Waiting Well. And our aim is simply to take a very applicable reality in all of our lives, and that is having to wait, and then to see how, um, see in the context of how all waiting is really a form of waiting on the Lord. All the waiting you do day in and day out, from the kind of inconvenient waiting to the anticipatory waiting to the agonizing waiting, can all be rolled up under the umbrella of waiting on the Lord. And therefore, all of your waiting that you experience each and every day has a purpose to it. And so for the final two weeks of this series, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this week and next week, and we're going to shine a spotlight on two people who often do not get a spotlight shined on them during the Advent season. And that are, are, uh, the names of them are Simeon and Anna. This morning we're going to look at Simeon, and next week we're going to look at Anna, who again come into the story after Jesus was born. But before I read the whole passage, I want to look at the final phrase that we're going to see this morning. So if your Bibles are open, uh, Luke chapter 2. Look at the end of verse 35. If you're in the Blue Pew Bible, it turns over to page 858. The end of verse 35, Simeon, in speaking of Jesus, who is a newborn at this point, says he has come, quote, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He has come so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So what we're going to see this morning, that Jesus, in his very presence, in his very work, he exposes And he reveals hearts, and and he does it one way or the other. And there is no neutral, hidden response to Jesus. He's the only person in the history of the world that will reveal our hearts one way or the other. There's no neutral. There was no neutral then. There's no neutral now. And so by your very nature of being here this morning, um, or for those who might be listening at some point in the future, um, listen, like we're all on notice this morning. Your heart will be exposed this morning. And I'm not saying that as a warning or as a threat, but a reality for us all. That wherever Jesus is rightly proclaimed, there's no neutral gear. And it will be revealed one way or the other. So, now let's get into the text. We're going to be covering ten verses in chapter 2, starting with verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, 
and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We're going to move relatively quickly through our outline this morning because there's a lot of things to notice in this short passage. Um, Specifically, what we're going to zero in on is the, the three things this passage tells us about Simeon. And then through Simeon, the three things that this passage says about Jesus. So first, three things about Simeon, then three things about Jesus. And starting with number one, Simeon waited on God. And I want to hover here because this is the theme of our series of waiting well and to see how, what Simeon shows us. And number one, he waited on God. So uh, if you notice, if you listened last week or you were here last week, we talked about Elizabeth. Um, and then we also see this about Anna next week, is that this is the only times in the, all four Gospels that three, these three characters are mentioned. And Simeon, like the other two, will disappear from the Bible after Luke chapter 2. He'll never be seen from, heard from, or written about again. And further, I think intentionally, Lou tells us that there's no real biographical sketch about Simeon. You don't know about his family. You don't know about any title. He was just a man. He was a man in Jerusalem who waited on God. And I love what I think is the intentionality of that's all we know. Uh, he's not a priest. He's not a leader like we heard about Zechariah. And we talk about all his family, kind of his rich family history. No, Simeon is just a man. And it continues a long-running theme throughout Scripture and then on through the, next, the last 2,000 years of church history of God loving to use these ordinary people to carry out his purposes. Just men, just women who are faithful and who he uses in unbelievable ways. Um, and as someone who loves to read biographies of people in the past, I always try to have a biography in the, kind of the, the cycle of books that I'm working through. And whether it's presidents, pastors, athletes, missionaries, um, I just appreciate getting to read about people placed in their historical context. Um, and if it's a Christian, usually, we all know that if someone had a biography written about them, it's usually because they did something impressive enough that was, quote, worth writing about. And when we think about church history through the eras, there are people that we attach to each era. So if you're big into history, or not even that big in history, you can probably locate a few people in each kind of era of church history to kind of know that we generally associate with that time. It's the famous Christians that get biographies written about them. But for every famous person, if we use that word, that we know about in church history, there are literally millions of people in every era that we will never know about. Just ordinary men and ordinary women like you and like me who God has used to carry out his perfect purposes. Um, As I look around, maybe someone in this room someday will have a biography written about you. And that's awesome, man. Live that life that is worth writing about. I'll read it. All right, send me a copy. All right, if I'm still around. When you have a biography written about you that hits the New York Times bestsellers list. But most of us, probably not a stretch to say, no one's writing a biography about you. You could self-publish one, maybe, and see what happens. But um, the, the reality is that we won't live lives that the world thinks that is worth writing about or worth reading. And I want to encourage you in that, to receive that reality with joy. 
Because that means you will join the masses of God's purposeful work in your ordinary, non-famous lives. And it's an awesome calling. And every single day, you do things that you might think are run-of-the-mill, kind of ho-hum. Maybe you do at times struggle with, like, this is my life. I'm just churning just week after week, Sunday to Saturday. I'm just working. We're getting our kids' activities. And we're just, you just feel like you're just grinding it out. I want you to know that in all your ordinariness, like reading your children a Bible story before bed, praying before a meal, Choosing to do the right thing instead of the easy thing, whatever that looks like in your life. Doing your best work at school or at work for God's glory, not for the money or for the grades or for the status. Uh, Being generous with your money uh, for the sake of building the kingdom. All that ordinary work might not be special in the world's economy, and yet you're being used by God to make his name known in all, again, of your ordinariness. Embrace it. And wait for the day when God grants you the vision to look back on your life and see how extraordinary it all really was. Wait for the day, maybe in glory, when you look back and say, there really was no such thing as an ordinary day in the kingdom of God for the people of God. Embrace it. So Simeon is just a man. But then we hear a few things about his character. Um, uh, First, he was righteous and he was devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Again, so we're seeing these immediate parallels to Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1. Righteous and devout, uh, anointed by the Spirit. And then we're told one thing that he was doing. What's the one thing Simeon was doing? He was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel so you might ask, what, what does that mean, the consolation of Israel? Um, he, he was waiting for Israel to be consoled, meaning to be comforted, to be supported, to be cared for. He saw in his life being righteous and devout and following the Lord just how far Israel had drifted from the Lord. And it didn't make him proud. It didn't make him those, one of those kind of uh, followers of God that you kind of look at everybody else and you're like, they are pitiful terrible people. They're not as righteous and devout as me. This is not a prideful waiting for Simeon. He's heartbroken. He knows who God is. He knows what it is to follow God. And he's heartbroken by the darkness that is around him. And so he's waiting, an agonizing waiting, a deep yearning for his people. And then he was given the rare gift at the time of the Spirit being upon him, and he knew he would see the Christ my, my inkling, I didn't think he knew it was going to be a baby, but he knew he was going to see the Christ, the Messiah, before he died. And so Simeon's waiting is, is hopeful, but, but he's somber. He's heartbroken. He's waiting in the dark, if you will. You know that kind of waiting. The waiting with the tears streaming down your face, that kind of waiting. Painful waiting, and yet a deep hope underneath it all. Simeon waited on God. And then number two. Second thing we learned about him, Simeon obeyed God. Don't overlook this. I want to ensure to highlight this because we've seen it each of our first two weeks in Psalm 40 and the last week with Elizabeth. That is a common theme of our series on waiting well. And that is to wait well is to have a resolve for obedience in the midst of your waiting. Let's not gloss over this. Have a resolve to say, I'm going to be obedient and following the Lord in the midst of my waiting. Simeon believed God that he would see the Messiah before he died. And Simeon obeyed God when prompted by God's spirit to go to the right place at the right time to see him. 
something uh, stirred up in Simeon, namely the Spirit himself, to say, go to the temple at this time. Uh, you know, we're not told how long Simeon had the Spirit upon him. Uh, what I found interesting uh, is that in the times you've heard about Simeon in the past, he's generally considered an old man. And um, because he says later, now you may take your servant in peace, that now I can go, now you can take me because I saw him. So I think it's fair to infer that Simeon was older, but there's no explicit evidence in the text that Simeon was old. And we also don't know how long the Spirit, uh, how long it was ago that the Spirit revealed this to him. Uh, could it have been a year, a year before Simeon was told, you're going to see the Messiah? Could it have been 50 years? Could it have been Simeon as a little boy growing into a young man where the Spirit was put upon him to tell him of these things? We don't know. But what we do know, what's more important to know, is that while he was waiting, he was listening for the Lord's prompting. I wonder how many days Simeon woke up and wondered, is this the day? I wonder if he had ever had periods of his life where the confidence started to wane. Like, Lord, you told me this a long time ago. What's going on? Waiting is hard. Like Simeon experienced, it's just so daily. Just day after day, especially when it's something you're yearning for and you don't know when it's going to happen. You might not know if it's going to happen. or uh, It's just day after day after day, and it's tiring to wait. And in the flesh, in our waiting, confidence does wane over time. Uh, hope dims over time. It's kind of a natural drift that while you're waiting, the more time it takes you to wait, just the, the weaker you get in the midst of that waiting. And what happens is that when we become weakened in the flesh, our commitment to obedience to God and to his word can often dip with that confidence. Our resolve can kind of weaken and soften over time, like a body that doesn't exercise. But in the spirit, and we know that Simeon was in the spirit, the confidence in God's promises remains strong in the waiting. And that resolve for obedience remains to say, Lord, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm going to be remain steadfast in following after you, in running after you. And then there's always an ear for God's prompting. And then the courage and faith to follow it when it comes. It's one thing for the Spirit to say to Simeon, hey, go to this place at this time. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. Um, so, so in the past couple of weeks, there was a major story in the world of college football, uh, and it was about Deion Sanders. Uh, Deion Sanders, an ex-NFL player who is the uh, current head coach of Jackson State. It's an HBCU school down in Mississippi who had their program turned around by Sanders coming onto the scene. He brought a lot of success to the program, a lot of attention, a lot of money to the program, to the school. Um, well, a couple weeks ago, uh, Deion Sanders was offered a job from a big, po big five power conference school, and that's the University of Colorado. And when Sanders had to break the news to his players at Jackson State that after this season he would be leaving for this job in Colorado, he said, and it's interesting because all the major media outlets kind of covered this aspect of it, that he took this job because God called him there. He took the job at Jackson State against all odds because God called him there. People were like, why would you, this big name, go to a little HBCU school? And he said, God called me there. And now God is calling him out. And God's calling him to another place. And he told his players that you have to listen to God's calling on your life. Now, 
I don't know about Deion Sanders' faith. I don't know historically or presently how strong that faith is or what evidence there is in that life, and I'm not trying to make that judgment. But at the very least, he's displaying a desire to listen for and to look for the Lord's prompting on his life, and then when he discerns that call, to have the courage to see it through. Now, I realize Dion got offered a contract to make $5 million a year at Colorado, all right? So you might be saying, like, if God called me to go make $5 million a year, I'd listen too, all right? I get that. I lay that down, all right? But point being, are you attentive to God's calling on your life? Are you listening for that? Are there reasons why you're closed off to that? That either the hope has gone away, that you might hear a calling, or, or maybe you're afraid of what you might hear. And God certainly uses external uh, affirmation, people who are close to you, certainly within your church, to affirm God's calling. It's not just from within, but there is an internal spiritual prompting to God's call on your life that then empowers you to actually have the courage to see it through. And what we have is what Simeon had and even more. So let me explain that. Uh, What Simeon had, I mentioned it earlier, was a rare gift in his day. Because before Jesus sent the Spirit to indwell all believers who put their faith in him after he died and rose again, uh, the Holy Spirit only came upon certain people for certain situations and purposes. We talked about that with the book of Joel. All throughout the Old Testament... The Spirit was active, but he did not indwell all believers. He came upon certain people for certain situations and purposes. But now, on this side of the cross, all followers of Christ today have the Spirit in us. If you proclaim Christ as your Savior, you have the living Spirit of God in you. Meaning, that who was in Simeon and prompted him to go to the temple is the same Spirit who's in you. And the Spirit does what the Spirit has always done. He prompts, he convicts, he moves, and he empowers, and he guides. Are you open to the Spirit's guidance in your life? Are you aware of that? Do you know what that looks like? But then I said we also have something that Simeon didn't have, and what I mean by that is that we have the full canon of Scripture. We don't have to question, I think as much as someone like Simeon did, hey, what did God really say? What does God really want from me? We know, and we have the gift of the Bible to know it's here. We don't have to wake up and say, God, I wish you would speak to me. You can open this, and anytime you open this book and read it, it is God speaking to you through his word. Which is why at Grace Church, all across our ministries, from kids to youth to adults, is we have such a firm conviction to be biblically rooted. What we mean by that is that we want to read God's word, study God's word, so we know God's word. But to know God's word just for the sake of saying, I know God's word is useless for you. To know God's word is to equip you to then obey God's word. And you can't obey this without the spirit in you. You can know it, but you can't obey it. But when we're living in the Spirit, we know it, we obey it, we trust that God's Spirit will prompt us to move in the midst of our obedience when it's time. Are you in his word? Could we use this next coming upon a new year when we all kind of reflect and have New Year's resolutions? And I'm not against New Year's resolutions, but I think they can have a purpose 
and that they remind us to go back to the things that God wants us to do. And God wants you in his word. And if you know it, are you obeying it? And if you are, you can have a higher trust that the Spirit will prompt you when it's time and you'll have the ear to hear it. Simeon obeyed God. Let's keep going. Third thing that this passage tells us about Simeon is that Simeon glorified God. He waited on him. He obeyed him. And third, he glorified God. So Simeon comes into the temple. He sees Joseph and Mary with their infant son, Jesus. And they're there to do for him according to the custom of the law. So at this point, according to Luke's gospel, Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, that very night or the next day, a group of shepherds came to the stable because the angels sent them there. Not sure if they were invited or Mary was glad to see them or not, but they were there. And then Luke says, on the eighth day, according to custom, they had the boy circumcised and called him Jesus as the angel directed them. Then when he was about one month old, according to custom, they go to the temple in Jerusalem and Simeon shows up. We have no record of there being any dialogue initially between the parents and Simeon before Jesus, uh, Simeon went to pick up Jesus. We don't know if Mary and Joseph knew Simeon beforehand or not, or who the stranger is who wants to pick up their child. I imagine he was beyond excited to experience this moment he's been waiting for. I imagine he was a little bit surprised that it was an infant, that maybe when God promised he's going to see the Messiah, he wasn't thinking baby. And now he has this baby in his arms. Could, could you just put yourself in his shoes, in your mind's eye? Standing in the temple in Jerusalem. Finally beholding the promise that has been given to you all this time. Looking into the face of a one-month-old and knowing by the Spirit within you that this is the Messiah, his Savior. Here's where my mind goes. I wonder if Simeon knew how to hold a baby. I wonder if he knew that one month old can't hold their, hold, hold their heads up. You, you know why my mind goes there? Didn't know. Babies can't hold their own neck up. Uh, and I forgot it with my son. Who's the, the, or no, I learned it for the first time with my son, proceeded to forget it for our daughter, and then proceeded to forget it again for our twins. And the amount of times I've gave my own children whiplash, uh, carrying out of the crib, out of the car seat, or somebody handing a baby to you, like, you need the hand here, right? Like, you need it here to bring it in. Like, I, I just took it like a football and, and, and like, the, like a bobblehead, all right? And like, I, the amount of times I apologized to my infant children, it's like, don't hold that against me. I wonder if Simeon knew how to hold the baby. What was that moment like for him? Looking at the face of his Messiah in a one-month-old. But before Simeon begins to talk about Jesus, he first shows his gratitude towards God and blessing and glorifying him. Again, a theme we've seen each of the past couple weeks that I want to ensure that we always highlight is that those who wait on God are marked by gratitude. Grace Church, one of the things I yearn for us as a church in North Jersey in a post-Christian and increasingly post-Christian culture, how are we going to make an impact? How are we going to stand out? How are we going to be salt and light in our world? Oftentimes we think about what are the big things we're going to do, the big impact we're going to have, when the reality is, I think it's the small, ordinary, spirit-filled moments of our lives that will make an impact for his name's sake. And a chief among them is being a people marked by gratitude. Gratitude in your waiting. 
gratitude when you receive your blessing, a resolved conviction of faith in him, I think that will be more countercultural now and in the years ahead for Christians in North Jersey than maybe anything else will. In a world that is marked by ingratitude, let us be marked by gratitude. All right, those are the three things that we know about Simeon. And now we turn quickly to three things we know about Jesus through Simeon's words. Number one, Jesus is a light for salvation. Jesus is a light for salvation. If your Bibles are still open, look again at verse 30. Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Uh, We know how spirit-filled this moment was. Because as he held Jesus and said this, verse 33, we're told that Joseph and Mary marveled at what he said. And when you, when you see marvel, think wonder, and not the skeptical side of wonder, like, no way, that could be. But I'm talking about like the, the mystical side of wonder, you know what I mean? Like when you allow your mind to go to places that you feel like you could only go to if God was empowering it. That kind of wonder. It's probable Uh, Maybe even likely that Joseph and Mary, for all they've known and been told about Jesus from the angels and the shepherds, that they're still thinking in nationalistic terms. Meaning Jesus had come for the people of Israel to be their king. He had come to the people of Israel to forgive their sin. But Simeon just blew the lid off and said, He will be a light to the Gentiles and to your people Israel. Meaning this baby that you're going to raise, Joseph and Mary, will be salvation for all people. I think that would make me wonder too. You don't have to turn there now, but in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem on what we, the day we historically celebrate as Palm Sunday. So the the week that he would be crucified uh, begins with Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And John 12 records that after he did this, he was... Uh, teaching his disciples and those who were in the crowd. Listen to what he said in the days before he went to the cross. And listen to the parallels to what the words were spoken by Simeon in the days after the manger. John 12, 46 will be on the screen. Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Compare that to Simeon saying, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is why he came. Uh, This is why we always say that you cannot talk about Jesus' birth and entry into the world without talking about his exit from the world dying on the cross. You cannot separate the two. And for anyone who does talk about Jesus and his birth without continuing to talk about what he came to do, die on the cross, and why he came to do it, so that whoever believes in him shall not remain in darkness, is giving an incomplete picture of Jesus. He is a light for salvation. Let's keep going. Number two. Second thing this passage tells us about Jesus. This is a little bit of a turn. He is a divider of people. He is a divider of people. So back in Luke 2, Joseph and Mary are marveling at what was just said. And then we read in verse 34 that Simeon turns to Mary. Notice, it doesn't say to Joseph. Joseph and Mary, both are marveling. And we're not even told why. But now he looks dead eye to Mary. 
Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Simeon says, not only will be a light for salvation, you might think that would have been a good ending to Simeon's wording. Case closed, move on. Let's keep going in the gospel. But now we get the second utterance from Simeon. Looks at Mary and says, your son's going to be a divider of people. Responsible for the fall and rising of many. And it's here that Simeon gives a little bit of a foreshadow into his life, saying not everyone's going to receive this light of the world. And then he's given supernatural insight into the greatest reality of the history of the world, that all peoples, think of this for a moment, all peoples, all times, all places, will be divided based upon the relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the eternal crossroads. You can't say that about anyone else. The Bible says that at the end of the day, there's only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who receive Christ and follow him. And there are those who oppose Christ and deny him. But again, there's no neutral gear. There's no remaining neutral when it comes to Jesus. Even though there has been and continues to be to this day really big attempts to be neutral when it comes to Jesus. To try to make ourselves neutral in relation to him. And the way this, try, this often looks like in our culture today is uh, when we try to take the opportunity to define Jesus how we want to define him, how Jesus would be best suited for us. And we tend to elevate the uh, kind of the things he did while he was living and really de-emphasize the fact that he died on the cross. So you hear a lot about Jesus being a great moral teacher or a model of someone who can protest against authority Someone who can stand against powerful institutions and start a revolution. Someone who hung out with all kinds of people, all kinds of ways. That Look at the way he served others and loved others and cared for and had compassion. And those are good things. And we should talk about those things. But if we cut it off there, we miss the primary reason why Jesus came. He came to die and rise again. But when we cut that part off, we remain neutral. Make Jesus as acceptable to the world around us. Because the world kind of likes that Jesus. They like teacher Jesus. They like revolutionary Jesus. But that is one that is ultimately only formed and distorted for our benefit in this world. And what we think is just the benefit of others. But being neutral in that way will be and will cause more damage in the end. Uh, so I just finished this past week a book by Wendell Berry. Uh, Wendell Berry is 88 years old. He's written uh, a ton of books, including a whole kind of novel series. I've not read a ton of Berry, but I've read a few of his books, and I decided to pick up this last one, which I think is his final one, and it's called The Need to Be Whole. The Need to Be Whole covers a wide array of topics, including an in-depth look at the history of his state being Kentucky. And if I knew this about Kentucky, I since had forgotten, because in the book he said that Kentucky declared neutrality in the Civil War. Did you know that? That Kentucky always remained neutral. Because it was a slave-owning state that did not align itself with the Union, but it never succeeded to join the Confederacy. It remained neutral. 
And Barry went on to share that not only did that claim of neutrality tear apart the state from the inside out, it in reality just divided families and church congregations and towns against one another all throughout the war. He makes the case, I think convincingly, that the side effects of so-called neutrality actually damaged Kentucky even more after the war. It was the reason why Kentucky faced more difficulty than the Confederate states of re-entering the Union after the war. And it struck me how in the same way, as I'm finishing that book and preparing this sermon, that those who decide to be neutral towards Jesus, it's the safe move. I'm not going to deny him, but I'm not going to fully accept him. I'll affirm some things about his life and his teaching, but not go all the way to accept his death as the only way to forgive sins. That whoever believes in him as Lord and Savior is the only way to be made right with God that that way of living can actually do more damage. And Jesus says this in not so many words himself, again back in John 12, the passage I read from earlier, what he says right after that confirms all the more that as he is saying these words days before he dies, he knew full well of Simeon's prophecy that was spoken days after he was born. Again, it'll be on the screen, verses 47 and 48. He then says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But then look at verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. Jesus is a divider of people, rising and falling. And then lastly, number three, final thing we learned about Jesus is that he is a revealer of hearts. And now we come back to that final phrase that we read in the introduction. Now we see it within its context. Verse 35, still speaking to Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. In addition to indicating to Mary that Mary, as the mother of this child, you're going to experience pain like a sword through your soul, even as he brings salvation to the world. I'm sure Mary was confused about that. I'm sure any who was standing around Simeon couldn't square that circle. But it gives us now, in hindsight, a glimpse into the pain and the victory of the cross. That which is a light of salvation is like a sword through the soul of his mother. But then Simeon also proclaims that all will be fully exposed when it comes to Jesus. All of our hearts will be fully revealed based upon how we respond to him. You know, think about this with me. If you know somebody, think of someone in your head who you know well. You're like, I know that person well. I really know who they are is the language we often use. I, I got to know who they really are. What, what, what do you mean by that when you say it? Oftentimes, something happened, you experience a situation or watch them go through a situation, not always, but it's usually a tense situation or a trial or difficulty or disagreement that reveals who someone really is. And what we mean when we say that I know who they really are is that we learned what they love most. When you say you really know someone, you now know what they love most. It's been exposed, it's been revealed. What Simeon is saying, what I am saying, is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revealer. 
and how you respond to him and his offer to you reveals who you really are. Which is to say it reveals what or who you love most. And all of us are on notice. He had this one-month-old infant in his hands, and yet he knew that the whole world will have to decide whether to follow him or oppose him, but there's no neutral. And I know looking around the room, many of you have chosen to follow him by God's grace. And that doesn't mean that you respect his teaching. That doesn't mean that you're just trying to live your best life as good as you can. It means that you believe in him, which is to say that you believe that he came to do what he set out to do. That you believe that he died on the cross. But not only that, that he died for your sin. Which is to say he took the punishment due to you and took it upon himself by his grace, by his choosing. So that by faith you will receive the forgiveness of sins. And experience for the first time what true comfort is in this world that you've been created with to have. And true restoration to your soul. And it means that you love him most. It doesn't mean you don't love other things or people in this world, but that now you love him most. And you commit to live out your calling to make his name known to a world that is still covered in darkness. And maybe you're here this morning, and if you were asked, you would honestly say, I don't know how I've responded to Jesus. Uh, I've known about him for a period of time. I've been coming here for a while. I've been exposed to his teaching both here and in other places. You've never said, I oppose him or deliberately set out to oppose him. But perhaps you know, or I would ask you to consider that if you've never made that decision to fully trust in him and surrender your life to him, that you would find yourself maybe using the language of like, I don't know, I'm I'm just kind of neutral. I, I'm living my life. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to do my best. I, I got a lot of things going on. I haven't really felt the need to make that quote-unquote decision. I, I want you to know this morning, I can't convince you of anything. I'm not setting out to convince you of anything. But I want you to see that there's no neutral before Jesus. And the the default position we were all born with, regardless of background, experience, or what family we were born into, or what church we grew up in or didn't grow up in, we all are born with a sin nature that is opposed to God. And that lives in opposition to his rule and reign over our lives, which is to say we love things of this world more than him. And so God sent his son Jesus which is what we celebrate in the Advent season and anticipate. He sent his Jesus in his perfect timing to be born of a woman, to live the perfect life we could not live, not to turn around and shame us, but to save us by dying the death we deserved so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so in the next several minutes, we're all going to conclude this gathering. And at some point, we're going to walk out the door this morning. And I want us all to know our hearts will be revealed in that moment. That we're either humble enough to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or we're prideful enough to say, Lord, I don't need you. Not right now. But it's going to be one or the other. 
And our hope is that you would choose life, that you would choose Jesus. For he came not to condemn you. He came not to tell you you to go clean yourself up first and then come back. He said and invited you to come in all your unfaithfulness and surrender to him. And he'll make you new. He will restore. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Simeon. We thank you that he was just a man, just an ordinary man used by you to speak truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn how to wait well from the model of Simeon. But even more than that, Lord, I pray that we would set our eyes upon that which Simeon pointed us to, your son Jesus, the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Father, I pray especially for those who have never made that decision to follow you this morning, Lord, to to put their faith in you, to repent of their sin. I pray, Lord, that they would see and have the eyes to see this morning that they don't have to go and live a better life before they have a chance, Lord, but they can come in all their unfaithfulness and simply ask that you would forgive them of their sin, that they would confess that before you, Lord, knowing that you are free and willing to forgive. And Father, for those of you who have made that decision, I pray that you would remind them this morning that our only hope is in you and that we stay close to you, Lord, and that you would guide us and empower us and prompt us by your spirit to live out the lives that you've called us to live. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song. Uh, This is a song we uh, began singing here at Grace a couple years ago. It's called, O Come All Ye Unfaithful. And... uh, If you have not heard it, I hope you enjoy even just the lyrics, let it soak in and join in in singing before we take the Lord's Supper.